Life of Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Treatment of neighbors. Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, always treated his neighbors with extreme kindness and consideration. He used to say that the angel Gabriel had emphasized consideration towards one neighbors so often that he sometimes began to think that a neighbor would perhaps be included among the prescribed heirs. Abu Dhar, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to him, Abu Dhar, while broth is being cooked for your family, add a little more water to it so that your neighbor might also share in it. This does not mean that the neighbor should not be invited to share in other things, but as the Arabs were mostly a migratory people and their favorite dish was broth, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, referred to this dish as a typical one and taught that one should not think so much of the taste of the food as of the obligation to share it with one's neighbor. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, On one occasion the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, exclaimed, I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. I call God to witness that he is not a believer. The companions inquired, Who is not a believer, O Messenger of Allah? And he replied, He whose neighbor is not secure against injury and ill treatment at his hands. On one occasion, when he was addressing women, he said, If anybody finds only the foot of a goat to cook, that person should share it with his or her neighbor. He asked people not to object to their neighbors driving pegs into their walls or putting them to any other use which occasioned no injury. Abu Huraira, peace be upon him, relates, The Prophet said, He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his neighbor. He who believes in God and in the day of judgment should occasion no inconvenience to his guest. And he who believes in God and in the day of judgment should utter only words of virtue or should keep quiet. of Islam radio in the name of Allah the most gracious ever merciful assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all and welcome to the voice of Islam radio and we are here to present the drive time show on a Thursday for you you're joined by myself Salman and brother Fahim Fahim how are we doing today I'm good I'm good I'm excited to talk about these subjects today interesting subjects isn't you it you know this is the best part of my week <laughs> surely is so we are talking about two topics 
as usual. The first one being tolerance, the only way to a peaceful society. Don't we all, all agree? Um, whether we act upon it or not is a different question. Uh, we will try and, and explore and try to explain why tolerance is um, very essential to a peaceful society. We all, And as always, we also have some great guest callers coming in from various Definitely. walks of life and uh, they will share uh, with us their experiences and uh, some of their knowledge in this regard. And in the second hour, um, as part of uh, this we're talking about the golden age of Islam right? exactly and as we've been discussing um, some philosophers yeah definitely and Al-Farabi uh, Farabi, uh, we're going to be discussing that and I think it's going to be really interesting because it's um, it's for me I, I think tolerance always is is a great subject it's something that makes the world go around right mm. like it makes for a better society and we're going to learn more about the political philosophy of Islam as well in the second hour so as, as you know we love to get into these subjects and we've got some great guests for us but we need our listeners as well right mm. they're going to they can contact us on uh, our socials at Voice of Islam UK or you can give us a call on 0208-687-7878 so what do we what, what should we say about tolerance what, what's your first thoughts on it let's get let's get into that first I think let's ask our listeners first okay right so what are your thoughts on it because we have asked you a question on our socials which is what is needed to create a more tolerant society or what is needed to create more tolerance in society um, we have received some replies to this we are awaiting more and then obviously towards the end of um, this hour we will tell you what you had to tell us but as Fahim said uh, our phone lines and our socials are always open um, you, you can tweet us or you can let us know uh, through phone call how you feel about it um we're, st- we're starting with it's, it's the voice of Islam yeah, right? so yeah. let's start with one of the most well the most important part of Islam the Holy Quran right? the Holy what? Quran the best and most complete book there is yeah. and uh, the, the most read book there is and uh, really which has the answer to each and every question of life the Holy Quran states and say it is the truth from your Lord wherever let uh let him who <clears throat> sorry wherefore let him who will believe and let him who will disbelieve so in an era marked by increased globalization cultural diversity and really interconnectedness the concept of tolerance takes on a dominant role in shaping societies I just want to say that that's chapter 18 verse 30 that yep. uh, verse that if you want to look that up yeah I, th- I think it's it's there in plain English right mm-hmm. you know let people believe what they want to believe and you know be tolerant of that right yep. like it's it's I think tolerance I think it's got this connotation of it being difficult like wh- why why do we find it so hard as a society to let people be obviously if they if they're impeding you in some way you know that i can understand that but ultimately if you can allow other people to believe their beliefs peacefully and build a society 
uh, you're just going to have more harmony, right? And tolerance is is that remedy for or that solution for a more to- for a more better interconnected society, right? Absolutely. Um, you see, in an era where we stand so much for tolerance and there are many aspects of society mm. which we stand up for and um, there are so many trends going around, especially on social media, mm. to protect certain classes or, or to protect certain habits or cultural backgrounds, etc., etc. Yet we are still missing out on on many things. Yeah. In in that very same society, right? Yeah. Um, it is not just religious freedom or religious religious tolerance we're talking about. It's really tolerance on a very basic level. We as human beings sometimes just want things to go our way. Yeah. So it's like my way or the highway, right? See, I'm glad you brought this up because um, in this discussion, as I was thinking about this topic. I also think the tolerance does go a bit too far the other way as well. I mm-hmm. think they, they, there is a middle ground of tolerance where, yeah. like, yeah. I feel like sometimes the narrative changes. Mm-hmm. And please call in and, and discuss this with me if, if you disagree. But um, sometimes tolerance goes too far the other way where it's like, you know, this this person or society has to be listened to by everybody. Mm-hmm. Where it's mm-hmm. like, tolerance is forced down your throat essentially yeah. whereas I think that tolerance is a balance where everybody has their their way and no particular belief system or opinion is forced upon any other individual yeah exactly I mean I shouldn't be tolerant of whatever there is you're doing um, until unless it is sort of within a certain circle of rules and regulations and you're not harming anyone, right? Yeah. But you cannot force me to agree with you on everything, right? Yeah. Now, that is, again... Th- you have a right to your belief, <clears throat> right? One of my friends and, 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 and his sort of common catchphrase was always, we agree to disagree. Yeah. But that's one thing I loved about him yeah. because we can agree to disagree and just move on. Yeah. We don't necessarily have to agree on every single point. Yeah. So tolerance, you're I mean, absolutely right there. It does go both ways. Yeah. We have to be tolerant, but at the same time, tolerance also has certain rules and regulations. Yeah. It, it, it's just not sort of an unlimited kind of thing that you just can go on and on, exactly. on about. So what's the significance of, of, of tolerance? Yeah, well... With with these things, I always like to start with the definition, right? So, yeah. as as defined by the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, tolerance is the willingness to accept or allow the existence of opinions or behavior that one dislikes or disagrees with. This definition encapsulates the essence of tolerance, which involves embracing diversity and differing viewpoints while refraining from discrimination, hatred, or violence. So yeah, I, it's it's there. It's simply it's like, and and I think what's what's clear here is that the willingness to accept or allow the existence of opinions. Mm. For me, I think the accept goes too far in the sense that like, if it's accept as in I take on those beliefs, I think I disagree. But if it's uh, accept as in you know accept like you know I accept that you believe that way, that's fine as long as you're not forcing that upon me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think uh, this definition, which is given by the uh, Oxford Dictionary, it is not more than that, and it is nothing less than that. That exactly is tolerance, hmm. right? So we, sh- we shouldn't go less than this. Yeah. But also we we shouldn't try and sort of overcompensate and just try give too much, but th- because then we are being uh, we are discriminating towards another sort yeah. of class yeah. of of uh, of the population, right? So it really has to hit the middle, and this is why the Holy Quran has emphasized on this, and it says that you are a a people that. Go the middle way that mm-hmm. are always taking the most balanced way, yeah. which does give the rights to each and every one. We will be talking more about this, but let's speak uh, with our first guest caller for today, which is uh, Shabnam Khaliq, uh, who is a teacher. Shabnam, uh, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for being with us today. And thank you very much for having me on such an important topic. Absolutely. It is a crucial, crucial topic. And this is why uh, we wanted to speak to you about this. Um, My first question going into this for you would be, how can we foster a culture of tolerance in diverse communities? Um, I think that um, it's a really, really important question. And it's a really important topic that we're looking at. Um, When we are talking talking about tolerance, it's this idea of respect acceptance and uh, appreciation even of others around us and I think sometimes um, the belief is that tolerance is just that you accept that people are there um, without actually appreciating what other people bring Um, and when we look at diversity and this idea of us living in a global village the world is really big but uh, globalization means that it's getting really small because we're all now interconnected um, and it's this idea of really appreciating uh, the communities that you are in and understanding the richness of the diverse communities that that we're in um, and this starts for me anyway this starts um at the level of government and the state and i think the government and the state have a real responsibility to invest in communities to invest in people and this happens through education it happens through events that are put on in local libraries it happens through uh, community events that happen where you ensure that there is that richness and that is that diverse uh, representation and you do have the diverse voice. So for example, in the community that I'm in, um, we have an interfaith network and the interfaith network does just that. It brings in people from lots of different communities um, who wouldn't normally sit around the table together and it's about getting to know each other and breaking down those barriers and breaking down those walls and really being able to understand a perspective that we might not agree with, um, but listening to that perspective. Um, And I think what social media has done is, and I don't know if you agree with this, but what social media has done is, um, it's created a world where um, opinions and things that you see and ideas that you are exposed to are increasingly ideas and voices that you agree with Um, and in order to have real tolerance we have to be able to listen to and hear and understand and accept and appreciate views that we don't necessarily agree with Um, and social media is taking that away from us a lot and one of the things that we we also need to look at is 
how we ensure that we are active bystanders in society and how ed- the education system is ensuring that actually we are fighting for our diverse communities and um, we are fighting for their right to exist and for their right to have their, their difference or their different ideas or their different visions and their sort of different beliefs and for me that comes from it comes from the level of the state it comes from understanding human rights and making sure that communities are actually uh, living up to human rights. Um, It comes from being able to talk about ideas that might scare you a little bit. Um, And then it comes from communities themselves actually taking ownership and saying, these are the networks that we're going to set up. These are the interfaith networks. This is what's going to happen in our local library, for example. Um, This is what we're going to do in our local community centre to bring all these different voices together in order to ensure that we've got um, a society that is tolerant and agrees on the things that we are going to not tolerate. Uh, We can't be fully tolerant of everything because there are things that we agree are not correct. For example, hate um, and, you know, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. These are the things that we're not going to tolerate. And it's really important that we have that, that dialogue and that shared vision and that shared understanding of what it is that we tolerate but then also what are the things that we are not going to tolerate as a community right and so with with that i think that what i'd love to hear from you is, is some examples that you've identified where intolerance has actually led to societal challenges and conflicts because you've explained quite well that uh, you know how we can uh, foster a culture of tolerance you know we need more representation in government etc but w- what are some examples that we can we can provide of, of where intolerance has actually led to these societal changes or conflicts um, I think one of the big ones if you look at what's going on um, right now in France for example where you've got um, the ban on the hijab in public spaces um, and you've got the ban on the abaya in in school for example i think that is a, a really dangerous rhetoric where um something is no longer being tolerated and you have a, a lot of people in france that are not the active bystanders that we're talking about you've got a lot of people that have just accepted that this is something that we're not going to tolerate anymore um, you, there was um, a member of the French Parliament who stood up and um, she was elected in and um, in one of the promotional posters was seen wearing uh, her hijab and was told that she couldn't actually campaign for a role in government. Um, and I think the dangers that we have in society is when we don't speak out and when we haven't educated our children and when we are not having the conversations um and again, this goes down to the, who is responsible for having these conversations. And it is the state and it is parents and it is schools, because unless we are having these conversations, particularly at the level of schools, we don't necessarily see that change. Um, if you look at campaigns that have taken place where people have been given freedoms and they've been given rights, and we look at, uh, for example, the, women ra- the women's rights movement, uh, that happens through that process of uh, sort of education and people being able to fight back but we can't have that until the level of education is there and that doesn't happen until 
the the state of investing in uh, what we are allowed to teach and what we are allowed to talk about. And increasingly, uh, the state is looking at creating narratives where things can't be shared in schools anymore and we don't want to educate the kids on these. So leave that out and remain politically neutral and do not speak about this and make sure you do not address this and this is something that we should not be speaking about. And that is creating increasingly a society that is very, very um, tolerant of everything. And that's where, if you if you look at Karl Popper, I think it is, who talks about you can't be tolerant of everything and you have to agree on the things that are not right and the things that you're going to fight against. And that's being eroded in society a bit because we do now have... Uh, a generation of people and a generation of young people that are very apathetic towards things like the hijab ban in in, in France or um, things that might be happening around the world that we're just apathetic towards because we've now tolerated that and it's allowed to happen and it's absolutely fine because we've not had the the discourse or we've not had the discussion and we've not had the education around it. Right, and so you've given some examples, but um, I. D- I'd want to know more about how is educating, how is education, and you know your your experience as a teacher, on playing that role of promoting tolerance among the individuals. Because you, you said that you know it's maybe you're teaching it in schools, but it's not being adopted as much. But like, what? How are you doing that? So how in this week, for example, or or last week, um, have you actually like promoted tolerance amongst individuals with your with your class or students? Oh, absolutely. I can give you two examples. Um, I taught in a school that was predominantly Muslim um, and um, as part of the GCSE spec, we were taking the children to the church because they learn about Christianity. Um, And we had parents from the Muslim community that said, no, we we are categorically not sending our children to the church because they're Muslim and they're not allowed to go. And Islam doesn't allow this. And no, the kids are not allowed to go. So... The way that we had to get around it is we had to take a trip with parents and we couldn't educate the kids until we had educated the parents. Um, Mm. So we had to do um, a trip after school where we took a number of our parents and we said, look, you know, this is a a church, this is how Christians worship, this is what the Trinity means, this is this place of uh, of worship, this is the, 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 the priest in the church, this is what this person's role is. And only then will we be able to break sort of the walls and break the barriers and will be then able to take the children into the church. Again, we've had experiences where we've had parents that have said, the children can't go to the mosque. Um, and no, I'm sorry, but this is what we've read about mosques and we, we don't want the children to go into the mosque. And we've, we've adopted a similar approach where we've said that we're going to have a trick for parents because education cannot be isolated in to classrooms and it's not about what you see in a textbook or what you see in exercise books. Education has to permeate through every single wall and pillar that we have in society. And it starts off with, again, like the governments, the councils, uh, making sure we've got the interface networks, making sure we are working with adults in the area, making sure we are working with parents. Only then is education actually effective. Um, classroom discussions are absolutely vibrant and showing children different viewpoints and um, sides of an argument that they might not have really heard. That, again, is a way to create 
tolerance in society, but we need parents and the backing of society to ensure that kids are able to carry that forward. Um, if I think about some of the things that we might see in society, if you think about what happened at the weekend um, and the far right who went down to the cenotaph and, um, you know, they, they had these really extreme views, they were, at one stage in my life, they were kids in classrooms that were being taught and I imagine they had teachers that wanted to create kids that were tolerant and something somewhere didn't work and for me, education is that three-pronged attack. It is kids, it is parents and it is society making sure everybody harmoniously is working together and everybody understands what it is we are teaching and how we are doing it and it is about sending resources home and getting parents in and um, other things that we have done have included taking our exercise books home and asking parents their view on something and um, coming back in and sharing what our parents view on something is um, and then when necessary, having mornings with parents, having coffee and cake evenings with parents, just so we can extend that classroom dialogue and have as much impact as we, we possibly can. Um, because it doesn't, none of this works if it's just isolated conversations, whether it's just kids in a classroom or parents in an interfaith network. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And uh, I mean, this is exactly what um, Islam has taught us as well. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mm-hmm. also Excellent. said that it is um, so, so important and, and it is a necessity that children are taught from a very young age because they obviously then will grow up to be uh, invaluable parts of society. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Shab Nukhli, thank you very much for being with us and a uh, great job that you're doing and really a great burden that there is on, on your shoulders in raising the future g- generations. Uh, I wish you all the very best. Uh, thank you for being with us. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much. And it's lovely to be with you this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I have a quick question for you. Um, so she mentioned about how some parents um, said that you know Muslim, the Muslim students aren't able to go to the church. Mm-hmm. Could you just elaborate on why that's not the case? Um, yes, I'll talk about this. But let's take our next uh, guest caller on first, as as he's on hold already, and then we'll come back um, to this. Uh, we've got on the call with us Ben Gidley who is a reader in sociology and psychosocial studies Ben thank you very much for being with us peace be upon you and welcome to the drive time show thanks for having me great to be here thank you Um, we are discussing tolerance and how tolerance is the only way to a peaceful society and in this regard um, I'd like to find out from you what is tolerance and why do we need it to attain a more peaceful society Well, I guess um, the definitions of tolerance that you've already been discussing uh, on the show tonight are are basically the definitions I'd agree with. But maybe just to add that there's two particular ways in which the word is sometimes used. I guess there's the tolerance of the majority. So the kind of mainstream, um, you know, the religious and ethnic majority in in a given country. So in Britain, that would be, you know, white Christians and their openness to other populations, other ways of of living, other beliefs. And then there's a second sense of tolerance, which would be something that's like more mutual tolerance, where we all um, give space to each other. And I think those two senses are slightly different. So when we're talking about the majority tolerating other people, there's maybe a slightly, I don't know, paternalistic or oppressive side to that. Like, 
they're the majority and they have to decide who else they allow in. Whereas if we're talking about mutual tolerance, there's a responsibility on everybody to kind of be open to others. And we might want to call that maybe conviviality rather than tolerance. And I think this is essential to a more peaceful society because really without kind of being open to each other and open to each other's beliefs and practices and differences and distinctiveness, then there's just no way of us, you know, getting on and uniting together. Right. And so oh, the media has a, has a big influence here on, on what we tolerate, so to speak. So I'd love to hear from you how does media influence the public perceptions and attitudes towards tolerance? How how is like what's what's the role of the media and how is that impacting like our level of tolerance or, or mutual tolerance as you mentioned? Yeah, I think you're right. You're absolutely right. The media plays a huge role. I mean, just looking at the UK, um, my um, academic work is predominantly on on Jewish and Muslim minorities and mainstream attitudes towards them. Uh, there's a lot of research in the UK by media scholars um, in studies that that I've done have identified maybe four um, key sort of tropes or themes that pop up again and again and these are similar to the ones that other media researchers notice so for example the mainstream media typically instead of using a framework like tolerance often talk about things like integration um, in which religious minorities are expected to fit in with an existing cultural model and then, you know, told off or um, seen as somehow backwards if they if they don't fit in. And in that sense, um, so Jews are sometimes kind of described by the media as a sort of model majority because they, they integrate. Muslims are described as failing to integrate. And I think when that kind of fear is placed in the public sphere that, that really impacts on tolerance. Second, I think um, the media often kind of uh, represents minorities as kind of uh, taking offense at being offended. Um, so if, if, if minorities kind of ask for a little bit of tolerance, they're often kind of constructed as the problem rather than as mm. identifying the problem. Um, and then I guess, um, Minor, well, Muslims in particular were kind of constructed as extremists and fanatics. There's a lot of you know literature on the Islamophobia that's promoted in the mainstream media, and I think one of the um, recent dimensions of this is that Muslims are often constructed as as anti-Semitic, which is um, uh, which then impacts not just on how the kind of majority population view Muslims, but it also impacts on how minorities see each other. So it creates, creates fear among Jews. So that's something I think the media is like, has a lot of responsibility for generating fear in a way that blocks the possibility of tolerance. Mm-hmm. Right. And so with, with, the, with the mass impact from the media, but I want to I go into more of, of the impact on the individual and the in, individual's well-being and mental health. Like, how does intolerance impact individuals? Well, I think um, I think in uh, in the sociological and psychological literature, there's a lot of emphasis on how we all need to have a sense of secure belonging in order to have any kind of um, mental well-being. That kind of a sense of secure belonging is really crucial to mental health, and I think that when um, 
mainstream societies are intolerant or when they're kind of fearful or make you know construct you as a sort of suspicious dangerous figure then that really really impacts on people's ability to have a secure sense of belonging um to to, to feel at home and so it really undermines mental health so so i think that tolerance is not just crucial in, in the sense of mutual tolerance and, and and respect conviviality is not just essential for a healthy society it's essential for healthy individuals Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we, we all agree that tolerance is important. But on the flip side, are there situations where tolerance might be perceived as a challenge or maybe even a threat? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if we think about that sort of need for a sense of secure belonging, I think it's also true. It's not just true of um, of minorities that experience discrimination and intolerance. It's maybe also true of um, of kind of the majority the religious and ethnic majorities who are not necessarily used to having their assumptions challenged who's who don't even maybe notice the ways in which they dominate the cultural landscape and so when that's challenged when they're asked to be tolerant when when there's kind of um an expectation that diversity is respected then that can be um seen as challenged by you know by the majority as well and i think that's especially true when um you know what we could call kind of entrepreneurs of fear whether that's politicians or the media social media influencers who are kind of pump out a message of, of fear and panic about migrants and minorities and muslims and so on then then that kind of really contributes to the, the sense of anxiety um which is often the kind of driver of uh, appeal of of intolerant political movements such as on the far right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, how, how do we strike that balance like because there's being there's promoting tolerance you know making sure that we're having a, harmful, uh, a, a harmonious society but when addressing harmful ideologies like how, where's, where does the balance where's the middle ground um, on not being so tolerant that we allow for harmful ideologies, but we are tolerant for more positive ideologies. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I guess it's um, it, it's one that's probably never going to be fully solved. It's a very much kind of case case by case. But for me, I think it's about the core principles of of um, of. Uh, the limits of what you might want to respect are when people's beliefs start to impinge on other people's rights to be themselves. So once people kind of, um, once people's views are kind of uh, make it make, mean that they don't tolerate other people, then that's when they become intolerable. So I think that kind of, um, I think kind of a, a set of values that says you know we need a society where everybody can flourish, and what and the values that kind of don't fit into that are those values that don't respect other people's rights to flourish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, Ben. Thank you very much for for being with us and um, sharing your knowledge in this regard. Um, and I'm sure that I mean I I have benefited a lot. I'm pretty sure our listeners did uh, that too. So thank you very much, and I wish Absolutely. you a lovely day ahead.
Thank you very much, thank you. Thank you. Um, so this was uh, Ben Kidley, we were speaking with, reader in sociology and psychosocial studies. And again, just emphasizing the fact that tolerance is so, so important. Coming back to the question that, uh, yeah. Fahim, you, you were raising in, in regards... I also have another question now, so, but please, start, let's start with <laughs> let's the question. With let's start one. with the first question I had. So, um, our first guest caller, um, Sister Shabn Khalik, who is a teacher, mentioned how parents were not willing to let their, as in Muslim parents, were not willing to let their children go to visit the church. And uh, they then had to take the parents to the church first and explain to them what it actually means to visit a church. Now, you see, Islam is is very clear. We have to educate our children. But it doesn't mean that we only educate them about Islam itself. Our children should be aware of what, uh, what other religions say, what other religions mean, um, what they actually believe in. Only then can they actually decide why we believe in Islam. You see, because it is, at the end of the day, the comparative study of religions that makes us believe in our religion, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it increases my my belief in Islam when I have studied all other religions and I can identify for myself that what I believe in is the utmost truth. Yeah. Right. So it is important for our children to and we uh, growing up here in uh, Europe, uh, all of us did visit the church at, at yeah. some point. It did not have any impact on me whatsoever. Yeah. Because what I was being educated about at home was was very firm and, and very strong. And, and at, at the end of the day, children will take what the children, what the parents are giving them because that's what you learn 24-7. That odd, or those odd, maybe five, six or ten trips to the church are not going to change anything. Mm. But it is important when your children go to the church and pick something up, when they come back home, then you speak with them about this and yeah. you ask them what they've learned. And you find out how it's impacted their thought process. And then you can educate them again. But again, it is important for children to to do these trips. But and Islam doesn't teach that don't go to churches. Oh no, like that's that's for sure. Not, like, at, uh, all. not at all. And uh, although those Muslim parents said that, and I thought it was great that you know they they took the parents on on the trip and and kind of explained that. I think that was great um, mm. method. Um, but just go circle back to your point. If you don't, if you don't choose, like you have to choose. There's no choice when there's only one option, right? Yes. So if you don't look at the other religions, don't understand what they believe, and and you know Islam it teaches you know belief in all religious books, right? Mm-hmm. That are sent from God. Yep. So um, I think that that's really important. And then going back to the church um, situation is that you know places of worship are always supposed to be respected yeah. in Islam as yeah. well. So definitely that's not something that um, Islam promotes Absolutely in any way. Yes. And um, circling back to uh, what we were discussing with uh, Ben Gidley, uh, he mentioned that there was, uh, they would, when I asked him about, you know, how do you strike that balance between mm-hmm. promoting tolerance and addressing harmful ideologies, he said there should be a set of values, yep. right, yep. That, exactly. that help you. And, well, I just wanted to, in case someone missed that, well, Islam. Yeah. Islam has those values. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, and, and, you know, the, the, it helps you to, to find that middle ground, you know, to, to be tolerant and to make sure that, 
you know, yes, be tolerant, but ultimately you're not going to um, stand for injustice. Absolutely right? not. You, Absolutely you don't not. you don't stand for that injustice through mm. this need to be in uh, to be tolerant. Yeah, trying to make that clear. Moving on uh, to our next guest caller, um, which is uh, Adam Tag, uh, Executive Director at Creating Tolerance in the Community. Adam, uh, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. Okay, thank you very much for having me. And I'd like to extend uh, goodwill to the Islamic community, not just in Britain, but across the world. And um, salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. May okay. the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Um, you. And discussing tolerance, and we've had some great callers on today already, yeah. and I'm pretty sure that we will benefit from you likewise. How does tolerance contribute to the creation of a peaceful and harmonious society? Well, um, first off, I think that the starting block for tolerance has to be, um, like, if we look at, in um, because we're, because I'm British, um, I'm going to look for it through a British and Western kind of um, uh, viewpoint here. Sure. But um, what we have in the West and in Britain is that this um, sort of people want to be accepted and people want to be liked all the time. Now... When you've got tolerance, what you're doing is is you're starting from the viewpoint of a basic viewpoint of um, human human to human um, contact, and the fact that you may not like someone, um, you may not accept someone, but um, you don't want any ill will to that person. You want goodwill to, to to that person, so that other people, so that that person can live the way that they want to live their life. You know. Um, good, constructive, healthy um, life. So that's where sort of tolerance kind of starts from. Um, when you sort of kind of forcing people to accept or like you, then there's then there's a pushback by people. So uh, from the starting point, so from the starting point is to um, it's just like you know basic humanity to each other, uh, to give each other dignity and respect. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because um, you know you can't expect everybody to like you, right? And yeah. but the thing is that 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 shouldn't be you. Sh- you shouldn't feel like the need that everybody has to like me. But equally, you don't um, force your opinion or make sure that that person likes what you like. So, yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. But um, yeah. I wanted to ask about how fostering tolerance enhances social cohesion, right? Like, and how does it reduce conflict within a community? Well, um, I mean, I've, I started my organisation 20 years ago, so I've, I've done a lot of um, stuff, uh, community-based stuff. Um, the, the best way to get um, cohesion and um, to resolve conflict um, within communities is really for communities to open up. Um, I've seen that firsthand where you have uh, different religions, they open up their places of worship and people come and uh, get educated, you know, they actually get the truth about the religion rather than um, what they may read up on online or in the media. Um, and so these kind of um, approaches is how you get um, is how you get like um, tolerance and you get um, social cohesion and, and communities working together as opposed to you know there's conflict 
from one viewpoint or another or someone's you know ideology or political beliefs or their lifestyle you know so um so that's that's the best way that i've seen uh communities uh you know embrace each other mm-hmm. mm. and talking about leadership what, yeah. what what role does leadership play in promoting a culture of tolerance within society Le- leadership is very is very important it's um it's a very responsible um thing uh, for leaders to create uh, tolerance uh, dignity and respect for people um when you get to political leadership you enter into a very different and difficult uh, area because obviously um when you're dealing with with politicians um they could have other agendas uh, especially if they want to get elected or you know from their own viewpoints and stuff so that area can be a little bit tricky um but if you've got leaders and also I'll explain it politically that have got compassion and empathy and they want you know all people to succeed then um that's where um that's the benefit of a good leadership comes from and um when it comes to education systems like yeah. well, how can we design them to better instill values of intolerance for future generations because you know um as we've uh, mentioned about um in previous shows about how the same caliph has said that you cannot reform a nation until you've first reformed the youth um, yeah. to make sure that the education systems are designed to instill these values like what what can we do to do that um again this is a very important um area to focus on um unfortunately there are people that do educate like parents they do educate their children to be intolerant or not to like mm. people because they are different than them um so it will fall upon um the education system to uh, bring about um better uh, understanding um you know uh, amongst uh, communities and that way you know that you can have a good chance of um producing uh, very upstanding uh, adults you know in the end so that is very important um uh, to tackle um and to make the uh, the society much much better and working for the benefit of all people Mhm. And um one last question yeah. we had for you is in regards to promoting tolerance as yeah. the primary path to peace. Are there potential drawbacks or challenges associated? The the only drawback and barriers there would be would be people. Um if you've got I mean majority of people do want to get along with their neighbors um regardless of uh you know whether their background whether the race uh, race religion uh political beliefs uh lifestyle um unfortunately we do have to come to to the realization that there are a, minor- a minority uh on this planet that um do not like people to get along and um so the vast majority have got to step up and um you know and and have goodwill to their neighbors and show that goodwill 
um, and just try to, uh, you know, try to get along and um, help their fellow human being. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, Adam, thank you very much for being with us and sharing um, this uh, invaluable information okay. uh, with our listeners. Thank you very much, and I wish you a lovely day ahead. Okay, and yourself and all your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, so this was um, Adam Tech that we were speaking with, Executive Director at Creating Tolerance in the Community. And, I mean, the message that we have gotten from all of our guests today is is pretty monotone there that tolerance is the way forward yes certain values and rules and regulations need to be in place to keep it um tolerant for everyone Mm. so tolerance should not be just sort of um, dipping towards one side of society but really it should be tolerant for everyone but tolerance is the path to peace and that is the teachings of, of the Holy Quran as well as well of the Prophet Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and something that has been uh, echoing in uh, all of the addresses of the current Caliph of the Amri Muslim community uh, he became Caliph in 2003 it's been 20 years 20 and a half years now and at every peace symposium at every um, outreach event that he has been to also uh, at events within the community his message has been very clear that tolerance is the way forward and on that note I want to share um, an actual quote from him from one of those peace symposiums Um, so this is from uh, the worldwide head of the MDM Muslim community uh, in at the Peace Symposium in 2006 mm-hmm. where he states an excellent example of this tolerance and forgiveness was set by the Holy Prophet of Islam peace and blessings of Allah be upon him who forgave all the persecutors at the time of the great victory of Makkah history bears testimony to this event Ikrama was the greatest enemy of Islam despite the general amnesty proclaimed by the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him on the day of victory Ikrama picked a fight when Muslims suffered a defeat and then fled when Ikrama's wife pleaded for his forgiveness the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him forgave immediately after forgiveness when Ikrama appeared before the Holy Prophet Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said to him arrogantly that if you think that because of your forgiveness I have also become a Muslim, then let it be clear that I have not become a Muslim. If you can forgive me while I remain steadfast in my own faith, then that is fine. Otherwise I leave. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, You can no doubt remain steadfast in your faith. You are free in every way. Moreover, thousands of Meccans had not accepted Islam and despite their defeat exercised their right of freedom of faith. So that was yep. the worldwide led, uh, leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community mm-hmm. who shared that example of um, tolerance from the Holy Prophet. Peace blessings will be upon him. So in Islam, the, the, the concept of tolerance is deeply embedded right, in, in its teachings. And we have discussed this at length um, in, 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 in previous shows and we have discussed some of it today obviously we, we spend more time speaking with our guest callers but as this is the radio voice of Islam we, we have to make it very clear because in this day and age you see Islam is being associated with not being so tolerant mm. and uh, even in our uh, drive time show from last Thursday we, we, we spoke about this yeah. at length that Islam is 
anything but intolerant yeah and an islamic society a society which follows the guidelines of the prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him a society that follows his character right yeah. i mean in a time of the prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him the jews could live very freely they could worship the way they wanted to uh the idolaters could worship according to their beliefs the christians could worship according to their beliefs and other uh, uh beliefs such as people that worshiped was the sun and people that worshiped uh the fire etc i mean all of these people were around but islam was so tolerant that they actually enjoyed being in an islamic state hmm. when the christians invaded the middle east and the islamic um, state was sort of removed from there the, the islamic governance was removed yeah it is stated that uh believing christians that used to live in the islamic state were crying when the islamic governance left because they were so fair and just and tolerant towards i mean every one of them Yeah, no one no one exactly okay. i mean the, the the true freedom the 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 true tolerance uh was created within those societies and that is what islam is about the quran the ahadith um which are the sayings of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace and blessings of allah be upon him emphasize the importance of tolerance understanding and peaceful coexistence among people of different beliefs and backgrounds and i mean th- this is something we we see on 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 a regular basis growing up as a a muslim this is what we have been taught right uh growing up in um the muslim houses or within a, a sort of islamic society when were we ever taught that we cannot be tolerant towards one aspect of society that has mm. never been the case right so even today living in the west uh even living within people that go extremely against the islamic view yeah. we are still taught to be tolerant okay. and this is how it should be yeah i just islam is not just like a book of rules or or, or, or right it's mm. it's a way of life yes and i think that when you look back in history you you'll see examples of very harmonious societies that are based on the principles of islam and you know there are challenges to the modern world right but islam is the solution for those as well like you know there is uh, one of the notable challenges is is the right of the rise of hate crimes and discrimination right mm-hmm. that are targeting religious racial and ethnic groups but when you use the principles and values of islam you will automatically be tolerant right like like you said we've we've never had an experience of of being told by our parents that being tolerant towards this or, or you know we don't like those types of people or, or anything like that because there's that unified book of values of a religion that has a, a principles that enables you to be firm and have conviction in your faith mm. without having to impede on others without yes. having to be prejudiced towards others yes it's 
it teaches that within it and it also asks you to question your th- faith and to mm. understand it and you know increase your knowledge and you know most fear and discrimination islamophobia racism i feel like come from a from a sense of insecurity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because of that insecurity and because people don't understand their own faith they don't f- understand their own identity etc they then lash out and criticize others yeah and that's where islam again gives a solution where it's learn your religion mm. understand it you know loyalty to your nation things mm. like this these are all things that will ultimately bring about a peaceful society so yes. it's there the principles are there mm. and as much as yeah there's experts in the world saying about you know um what tolerance is defining it and and applying it islam is a solution and you know it's there for everybody to see and that's only come through the promise of sai as well right who has taught those um islamic principles uh, through the teachings of the through the tr- true understanding of the teachings of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him absolutely um, yeah so yeah we are coming towards the end uh, of the first hour um this very important and beautiful topic was brought together by our producer Anna Mahmood and uh, we will now be listening to a short clip about the prophet being a man of peace and that will take us to the news break with so many attacks on islam and the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam let's set the record straight he was a man of peace he went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs he was mocked and ridiculed but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace when he went to taif to spread the message of islam he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace When he migrated to Medina he established the charter of Medina allowing the Jews Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace and after all the oppression that he faced when he returned to Mecca as a king he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace The Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that no white man is superior to a black man no arab to a non-arab rather everyone is equal he freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers he did all of this because he was sent as the Allah. listening to the voice of islam radio broadcasting on dab and via the internet 24 hours a day bismillah rahman rahim in the name of allah the most gracious ever merciful and welcome back to the second hour here at the drive time show uh, brought to you by the voice of islam radio and we will be speaking uh, about al farabi Islamic political philosophy so in this in today's show we will delve into the life and ideas of one of the most influential philosophers in the history of thought al-farabi um now this extraordinary thinker from the islamic golden age made significant contributions to various fields from ethics to political philosophy his ideas 
continue to inspire and resonate with thinkers around the world today. And we have some great guest callers coming in today to speak about this topic. Our first guest caller is online with us, which is Professor uh, Peter Adamson, who is a professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy at the LMU in Munich, co-director uh, of the Munich School of Ancient Philosophy and also additional uh, fractional post as professor of philosophy at King's College London. Professor Peter Adamson, uh, thank you very much for joining us. PSP upon you and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Professor Adamson? Yep, I'm here. Hi, let's get straight into it. So, um, with uh, with Al-Farabi, there's a, a connection with Aristotle, right? Um, and he used some of his works. I'd, I'd love to hear from you about his polit uh, pol political philosophy and what key ideas that he borrowed. Okay, sure. So he is someone who's living in the 9th to the 10th century um, from Central Asia, but he works in Iraq. And he's drawing on the Greek philosophical and scientific works that have been translated into Arabic over the past several generations. And one of the sources he uses a lot is Aristotle, as you said. For his political philosophy, he draws also on Plato. And he's trying to explain what would be the best state to live in. Actually, something that's interesting here is that he still calls the state a Medina, so a city, oh, nice. just like the Greek philosophers thought about cities, even though he's like living in this huge empire yeah. <laughs> under Islam, right? So that shows how much he's thinking in Greek terms still. Interesting. But one thing that he adds to the Greek ideas, I mean, there's a lot of things, but one of them is that he defines the best ruler as someone who is also a prophet. Mm -hmm. So someone who has a revelation from the divine, he thinks will be in a position to rule and guide people towards happiness in a way that a ruler without prophecy would not be able to do. Right. And so Al-Farabi's ideas have had actually a significant impact on Western philosophy during the Middle Ages. What are some of those key elements of his thought that has impacted and influenced Western philosophy? Yeah, that's actually interesting. So Farabi has a kind of strange reception in the Latin-using world of Christian Europe. Hmm. So there we see, especially Ibn Rushd or Averroes and Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, they have a really huge impact in Latin because a lot of their works are translated. Farabi is also translated, but he's not nearly as impactful as the two of them, mostly because they don't translate as wide a selection of his works. And in particular, they actually don't translate his works on political philosophy. They translate his works on logic and things like that. Okay. So you could say that his impact in Europe is not as great at least immediately but he's been very important in the 20th century so he's been seen as like someone who sort of perfectly fits into this sequence of the development of political thought coming out of greece and then into the medieval period because as i said he he kind of adapts the ideas of plato and aristotle and makes them suitable for the islamic world right and so he contributed a lot to the development of ethics and moral philosophy you know with islam being there is core. Um, what were some of those uh, ethical theories and how did they differ from other philosophers of the time? One thing, so, he, so he's um, very much like the Greek philosophers. He's very interested in the idea of happiness. So in Arabic, this is Sa'ada. 
and his idea is that humans should be trying to perfect their capacities to the fullest degree. So that could mean, you know, physical perfection, certainly ethical perfection, like acquiring the virtues. And for him, it also means intellectual perfection. So he thinks that the ideal ruler would be someone who does all of that. So someone who's, you know, equipped to fight in war, but also understands what kind of moral education people need so that they can arrive at the virtues, and someone who also understands even like philosophical science. So this would be a kind of perfect human being, right? And something that's really interesting about him is that he then considers what we should do if no such person exists. So he he doesn't say this, but presumably he's thinking of the Prophet Muhammad as a perfect individual. And then he's reflecting on what you should do after this person's no longer there and there's no replacement, right? At least no equivalent replacement. So he says, well, if you could find a group of people who collectively had the same features, then they could all run the society together. And failing that, you could also look at what the original lawgiver, prophet, ruler, this perfect individual, you could look at all of the laws that he had laid down, and you could just interpret these laws and try to update them for new situations. So this is interesting because you can see him trying to integrate Islamic law, like fiqh, right, into the context of a fundamentally sort of Greek-based theory of ethics and politics is another example of how he tries to sort of update these ideas and make them relevant for a Muslim audience. Interesting. And so are there any specific works that uh, Al-Farabi has, like, that you found particularly insightful or relevant to today's philosophical discourse? Oh, wow. Okay. That's an interesting question. I mean, the obvious one to mention is one that has a long title, so it's called um, on The Principles of the Beliefs of the Inhabitants of the Perfect City. Okay. <laughs> so this yeah. is what I said before, that he talks about it in terms of city, right? So yeah. Al-Madina Al-Fadila is perfect city. It's a virtuous city, you could also translate that. And I think something that's interesting about that is the reference to beliefs in the title. So the, the Arabic word there is ara. So what, he's, what he thinks is that even though the, it's the ruler who has to have perfect knowledge about everything that's going to be done in the city, like he has to understand the virtues, he has to understand justice and so on, the people who live in the city still need to have at least true beliefs about these same things. And he actually says specifically that they need to have beliefs both about actions and about the way the world works. So he would call that practical and theoretical philosophy. So, for example, they need to know that God exists, but they also need to know that it's wrong to commit murder, right? So these are very basic things, but it would go well beyond that. And I think something that's interesting there is that he's really gesturing towards the idea that even if we don't want all the citizens of the where we don't require all the citizens of the perfect society to be like scientists and potential rulers, we do need to educate them because mm-hmm. if they don't have the right beliefs, then the society won't function. So, I mean, obviously he's not like in favor of democracy <laughs> or anything like that, but he is in favor of enlisting the entire population in a kind of overall project where everyone's sort of pushing in the right direction because they all have the right beliefs. And actually, I think that's an idea that we can hold on to still today. Absolutely. Um, Professor, I'm amazed how you have 
manage to summarize such a vast topic in, in, in a very, very, very brief answer. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. as a philosopher. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Professor Adamson, thank you very much for, for, for being with us. And thank you. And it's I great that you're you covering Farabi. I mean, not someone who often gets talked about on the radio. Sure, sure. <laughs> thank you very much for being okay, with us. Thank, thank you. you. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. So Professor Peter Adamson um, was just uh, answering some of our questions in regards to Al-Farabi. And I, I mean, I, I was expecting very longish answers because yeah. you see, philosophical questions yeah. require philosophical answers yeah. as well. But uh, thank you for, uh, to uh, Professor Adamson. I can imagine I, the students in his class just like loving to just the concise, clear answers that he was giving. That's brilliant. They must yeah. love him, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so uh, we've had uh, some of our guest callers that we have spoken uh, to earlier on and uh, we will now have a listen of what they had to say to us so let's uh, listen to the first call here so in your research on uh, 19th and 20th century philosophy have you found any philosophical ideas or concepts that are particularly relevant to contemporary political debates well i think the way i do philosophy uh, all issues are relevant to contemporary debates i'm not really an historian um, but, I mean, you have to understand contemporary debates in the historical context. And certainly uh, contemporary debates on free speech and liberal values are, you know, just crucially embedded in earlier history, uh, particularly like one of my heroes, John Stuart Mill, who offered a very powerful defense of liberalism and free speech. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of his ideas are being forgotten, I think, really. Um, or neglected, shall we say. Oh, in, in what sense do you might think it might be being forgotten? Well, I mean, there is, for example, uh, one of his most famous ideas was um, what is called uh, a harm condition mm-hmm. uh, or intervention by the state. And when you think about uh, issues of free speech, People nowadays seem to think often that um, uh, free speech should be uh, restricted if offence is given. And uh, Mill was very clear that offence is not a sufficient reason for the state to at least restrict uh, freedom. Uh, You know, you might consider it, you know, obviously we shouldn't go around being offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, except, you know, there are cases when offence, you know, if someone has bigoted views, then probably it's rather good that they should be offended. Um, mm-hmm. But um, it's not normally uh, a sufficient reason for uh, banning a demonstration or something that the, the, the comments are offensive. I mean, there is a, a very good book um, called uh, The Harm in Hate Speech by Jeremy Waldron, that says that some hate speech is harmful, but you have to make the case that it's harmful. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not sufficient. Uh, people are, well, I don't really, well, I'm not exactly sure how this has arisen. Um, I mean, I mean, it always used to be, I suppose, considered that, um, you know, if something's offensive, then maybe it should be banned. But, I mean, this is not, uh, Mill showed this is not a, a good argument. Uh, I see. Okay. Yeah. I think you're right. We definitely kind of see that a lot um, in today's kind of day and age and with our current political climate. Um, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned Mill. Um, are there kind of any other historical political philosophers or political thinkers um, 
you know, whose ideas you find particularly relevant or influential. I mean, I know we just spoke about Mill and the idea of free speech uh, in, in today's uh, period. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of like draw on or any other philosophers? Um, maybe maybe well, kind of obviously, Europe as well. You know, there are certain figures that are just unavoidable. I mean, that, you know, that help to create uh, modern ways of thought. I mean, like, uh, I, I like to think of there being a kind of... Um, if you think about Marx, Darwin, and Freud, those are mm. three figures who uh, you—it you, would be foolish or anyone who tried to claim that they were not interested in them or hadn't been influenced by them would would just be misunderstanding the modern era, you know. But in in political philosophy, I mean, I'm particularly interested in conservatism, not really because I'm a conservative. I mean, I should say I'm a. I'm a member of the Labour Party. I mean, mm -hmm. some people might say you have to be fairly conservative to be around the Labour Party, but uh, you know, um, uh, you know, conservative thought I, I think is very neglected in political philosophy, and um, <clears throat> I suppose that's one of the things I'm known for in political philosophy is uh, writing on conservatism. And people tend to think that if you write on conservatism, you must be a conservative. Well, that's not true, but I think. There's, there are important truths in conservatism. And one thing I'm working on at the moment is the concept of tradition, which I think in philosophy is very neglected. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that's my um, alarm going off to tell me about this interview. Um, okay. <laughs> which is quite appropriate, really, considering I was jet lagged and over and slept, oh. overslept last time. Oh, no, no worries about that at all, don't worry. Um, so conservative thinkers, I think, um, are very interesting. And... Uh, highlight certain i mean this question of uh i mean the the notion of precedent which is very important in the law particularly mm -hmm. in common law, it's it's kind of unavoidable but you know in general you know the answer when when someone says well why are we doing it this way because this is how we've done it before we've always done it this way what kind of answer is that and and you think about you know the recent uh ceremonies connected with the death of Queen Elizabeth and the mm -hmm. coronation of King Charles. You know, I had no idea, like the breaking of the wand, the wand of office, which is what the sovereign has. And uh, when, our, you know, as part of the ceremonies uh, for the uh, funeral, the Queen's wand of office was broken, which was a very moving kind of ceremony. But I had no idea that this I had no idea there was a wand of office. I had no idea there was this ceremony. Why are we doing this? Well, it's been done like this for millennia, well, hundreds of years. Obviously, mm. the ceremonies have evolved. So why, you know, why is that an answer? Uh, it, and I think it will be a kind of false rationalism to say, um, oh, answers like that that refer to tradition are just uh, ludicrous and uh, we shouldn't have anything to do with it. Every society has traditions. Mm -hmm. and it's a question of whether they're traditionalist or traditional that's uh, the important question. And so I don't think the modern era, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I believe in the Enlightenment, but I don't think that rules out the place of tradition. I mean, I haven't made much progress in answering this question so far, but um, hopefully... No, no, this has been fascinating. I mean, I'm wondering if you could just, for our listeners, kind of uh, expand a bit about the difference between being traditional and being traditionalist. Well, that's, that's, fascinating. that's a very good question. Um, 
there's a philosopher called Munoz, M-U-N-O-Z, who I don't know anything about, but um, he had a quote where he said um, uh, that, uh, well, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was to the effect that uh, traditionalism is an ideology. It's an ideology mm -hmm. of tradition. And uh, the Enlightenment really put paid to, or at least, you know, was an attack on traditionalism, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be an attack on traditions as such. Mm -hmm. So, the, you know, I mean, the common law, which is, I suppose it's not something people know much about, uh, unless you're a lawyer or, you you know, you're particularly thinking about this, but it is fundamental to the uh, social structure of, um, uh, you know, English-speaking societies, and mm -hmm. including the United States, the British Commonwealth, and so on, uh, this notion of precedent. I think it's actually found in all legal systems, but uh, particularly the common law um, that is built on the notion of precedent, on something having been established is continued in that way. Now, I suppose you could say that tradition, well, well, I, d I don't know. Look, I mean, I don't know the answer to the question um, you know, what is the value of tradition mm -hmm. and uh, is traditionalism back? I mean, I suppose I would de tend to say that there's a there's a weak and a strong notion of traditionalism. Mm -hmm. And you know, traditionalism, in, in a good sense, is just respect for the past. And I think, you know, you've got to have respect for the past. And there's a tendency, I think, for example, woke culture, when it criticizes earlier societies, for their practices of um, attitude to slavery and so on, forgets the effort of historical imagination that's needed and the fact that, you know, um, if you lived in a society in which which was racist and which, you know, it was just assumed, it was just mm. everyone, you know, had this position, then it will be extremely difficult not to be. Uh, I mean, I like the example of uh, John Brown, who's... Uh, uh, spirit goes marching on or whatever it was the civil war uh, anti-slavery campaigner in america mm -hmm. he was almost unique in his time in being anti-racist uh in the early 19th century and uh i am not sure how he how he how this came about or how he was but um you know that it was just the norm and so one has to um you know make allowances for that uh, mm -hmm. to exercise historical imagination. And I think that kind of, um, I call it presentism, that that mm -hmm. kind of view is really uh, rather unfortunately common. I mean, Henry Ford, who built the motor company, mm -hmm. he said history is bunk. The only kind of tradition that matters is the present. And that is just so wrong. Mm. Just wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think it's quite interesting that you kind of say that, you know, maybe that's not really an answer to the question of what is the value of tradition. But I think even just acknowledging the fact that tradition does have value is a really important place to begin, because like you say, I think especially in today's uh, kind of climate, it's so easy to dismiss things. And as you say, like without any kind of like historical contextualization as to why, you know, certain phenomena happened in the first place, um, which also, I suppose, makes it difficult to be able to move on from them. And, you know, if they weren't good practices, say, obviously, like you say, slavery or racism, um, I, I do. I would like to go back to uh, something that you said earlier on when you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, the line between 
hate speech as or you know kind of like criticism and defense as a constructive method versus something which is kind of just done for the sake of it um and i'd like to just ask you about the relationship between freedom and security um and kind of how that might have evolved over time um well i mean conservatives stress that um order social order is important as much as freedom and uh Part of the attraction of conservatism, you know, in certain respects, I mean, I, as I said, I'm a member of the Labour Party, I'm not a conservative, but in certain respects, I think it's crucially important that one uh, has a respect for the fragility of social institutions. I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, I think the Conservative Party today is, is a radical party, really. I mean, it's constantly reforming. Uh, mm -hmm. The number of reforms of, that have happened of the health service are just ludicrous. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. um, so there's a kind of faith in uh, the French. This is an effect of the French Revolution, uh, basically. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you can start from year zero, you can build up social institutions. Uh, let's just destroy. Well, this republic's not going very well. We're on the uh, the fourth, fifth republic, or whatever. Let's have another republic. I mean, doesn't seem to me. It, it seems to me the the criti criticism of the, the French Revolution and of revolution in general from conservatism has has some force. And so, when you're talking about security, well, one sense of security is the security of social institutions and their fragility. And I think people, you know, radical reformers forget that, um, you know. Um, there is a danger of uh, breakdown. If you look at like what's happening in the United States at the moment, there's no guarantee. I mean, democratic institutions are strong there, but there's no guarantee that some moron or you know or evil, um, you know, well, I would mind my language, you know, person like Trump mm -hmm. could damage them very considerably. There's no guarantee that that won't happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't think one should be hysterical but um, about this, but there's a real danger. And, uh, uh, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance, etc. you know. Mm -hmm. I think lots of food for thought there. Thank you. And um, just as a final question to wrap up, uh, we are talking about um, uh, Al-Farabi today, the Arab uh, thinker and scholar. Um He's been kind of studied and appreciated um, in not only the Islamic world, but in this Western world um, and, you know, uh, within like Western philosophy, been widely translated. Um, so how do you see maybe some of his ideas resonating and um, kind of still speaking with and in dialogue with contemporary issues and philosophical discussions? Well, I would put it in the con I would put his ideas in the context of the debate between liberalism and conservatism. I think that's, uh, you know, one of the fundamental questions uh, in political philosophy. That's, you know, the area for one of the areas of philosophy I'm interested in. So I would see his ideas as contributing to um, that dialogue between figures like um, uh, Mill and Roger Scruton, you know, who's a contemporary conservative mm -hmm. who um, are further, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm defending the, uh, a conservative position in some respects, but you know, I, as I say, I'm not a conservative, and I think 
um, some of those ideas are neglected. And the importance of tradition and the importance of history, I'm sure uh, he would recognise that. And I think uh, liberal political theory, which is the most popular in West, certainly among academics, as, as represented by John Rawls, is inclined to be very abstract. I mean, this is the legacy of Kant. It's mm-hmm. ahistorical. And I think we need input from other traditions that emphasize the value of history and tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining me today. Um, I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate everything you've uh, brought to, to the discussion. And I hope you have a lovely day ahead. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank for inviting okay. me. Cheers. So this was uh, a, a interview that we conducted with Professor Andrew Hamilton, who is Professor, Chair, uh, Director of Aesthetics, Ethics and uh, Politics Research Cluster in the Department of Philosophy at Durham University. And we will now move on to our next interview. Let's hear it. We are honoured to have Professor Terence Clavin with us today to discuss Al-Farabi and Islamic political philosophy. Currently, he is Professor at Central College, Pella, Iowa, USA, and Chief Regional Officer of the Upper Midwest American Academy of Religion. Professor Clavin has taught at Central College since 1996. He has published articles and book reviews in Old Testament studies, Greek and Arabic political philosophy, Middle Eastern politics and Islamic studies. Clavin is the recipient of two Fulbright scholarships. The first allowed him to study in Beirut, Lebanon, and the second in Amman, Jordan. A very warm welcome, Professor Clavin, to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Salam alaikum. I'm glad to be a part of um, this uh, conversation, and I hope that we have a, a good chance to reflect on a very important thinker within uh, the history of Islam. Walaikum salam. Walaikum salam. Welcome again. Okay, Professor, um, for our listeners who may not be familiar, could you provide a brief overview of who Al-Farabi was and highlight his main contribution to Islamic political philosophy? Sure, thank you very much. So Al-Farabi is actually Turkish Mm -hmm. in terms of ethnicity. He grew up in Central Asia and... So he likely spoke different languages, um, a Turkish language, perhaps Persian, but also, of course, he learned Arabic through the mosque and from his his family associations. Mm -hmm. And uh, the area where he grew up was what we would call Kazakhstan today. And so he grew up there. His father was a military officer. So he had strong connections with uh, with uh, the larger uh, context of intellectual life. He studied in Marv, in the city of Marv, and then eventually he went to Baghdad, which of course at that time was the center of uh, Islamic civilization. So Al-Farabi's um, date of death is 950, A.D. Right. 338 A.H. A.H. 338. And so he is in uh, Baghdad um, just shortly after its classical period of translation work that was done from from Greek and Syriac into Arabic. So he inherits the 
the rich heritage of uh, philosophic, scientific, mathematical, logical works that have been translated by that time into the Arabic world. And, and he is a very avid student of everything he can get his hands on. So he lived a significant portion of time in Baghdad, but also in Damascus and also in Cairo. And we also think that he was in uh, Constantinople amongst the Byzantines, amongst the Greeks for a while while he was there. And then went back into the uh, the Eastern world and um, died in the vicinity of Damascus. It's kind of a tragic story. He was fairly elderly, 80 years old, and he was traveling between Damascus and uh, Jerusalem, a city in Palestine, and some thieves met him on the road and and um, and killed him in the process of of being, uh, you know, of robbing him. Mm-hmm. So, so that's essentially his his place of uh, of origin and his a short biography. And then he uh, he was a great student. He was a great student, and mm-hmm. he did his best to study as much as he could of Arabic philosophy that was available. And it all would have been much of it would have been from the Greek world. So he is a he is an advocate of the importance of reading Plato and Aristotle. And he is responsible for a recovery of an understanding of Plato and Aristotle that had been lost on the Europeans. So if you want to uh, understand a certain aspect of Aristotle and Plato, you have to you have to read uh, Al-Farabi. He's really the first amongst the Arabic philosophers. Al-Kindi is slightly before, but we don't know as much about Al-Kindi. But Al-Farabi is the giant who recovered almost single-handedly after about 1,300 years of, of, of work, of time passing. He was the one that single-handedly recovered this, uh, what we call the, the reading of Plato and Aristotle, that they were primarily political philosophers, that their aim was to recover, that his aim was to recover what political philosophy meant to them, and that political philosophy was kind of an or- overarching uh, science, which uh, which which was the uh, ruling science for all of the other sciences, and the main reason for that is that uh, political philosophy asked the question of what is happiness for human beings, and all of science was oriented toward that. So we call Al Farabi's philosophy political philosophy, mm-hmm. or sometimes humane or human philosophy, and so that's why. He became so significant. Oh, very, very well explained. Very well explained. <clears throat> so, um, Professor Al Farabi introduced the concept of philosopher king. Um, can you explain this idea and <clears throat> implication for political leadership, and how does it differ from other political th- theories of his time? So, um, this is one. Uh, element that uh, Al-Farabi gains from Plato and Aristotle, and it is essentially the view that the one who is the most knowledgeable or the most learned, the one who has knowledge, is the one who is best suited to rule. And of course, that kind of knowledge is not a narrow kind of knowledge. It's not some kind of technical knowledge, but it's knowledge of all things. And it's knowledge of how to make good judgments about 
um, the beings of things, how things act in their uh, according to nature, and how to coordinate uh, groups of people to work together, uh, because there are differences uh, amongst people, and uh, it needs to. We need a ruler that will draw everyone together. So the philosopher should be the best ruler. Now, of course, that puts high demands on what the philosopher should be like. The philosopher is going to have to know a lot about uh, many things, including the virtues of humility and tolerance and, and, and so on. Um, but it is that importance of knowledge that, that, that is the basis for the idea that, that the philosopher should rule. Now, interestingly, Al-Farabi agreed with both Plato and Aristotle that the um, the uh, philosopher would not um, be easily put into this position of rule because many people might not respect his knowledge or her knowledge, that they might not um, acknowledge it or vote for it in a democracy. And so the argument was that it would only be by chance, it would only be a kind of uh, stroke of luck if the one who should be the ruler actually became the ruler. What became so important, actually, and this is this is very important to an understanding of Al-Farabi, is that he did not see any of this as contradictory to Islamic faith. In oh. fact, he would say the prophet is the one who is both the prophet and the the one who knows the most the the true philosopher <clears throat> so that so there isn't this separation that we have today so often between philosophy and religion and that is what makes some of this greek political philosophy so interesting is that it is not antagonistic to the truths of religion one of al-farabi's students uh, a, f a few hundred years later, Ibn Rushd or Averroes, he's uh, a Spaniard or he's in Spain, he's an Arab living in Spain, uh, in the Andalus, said that all truth agrees with all truth. And so the truth that we learn in philosophic science is not antagonistic to the truth that we learn in religion. They go together. And in fact, he uses a very interesting comment about this very thing. He says, uh, philosophy and law, that is philosophy and religion, are um, lovers by instinct and, and friends by essence. They are like milk sisters. They, they belong together and they're not uh, antagonistic to, or they shouldn't be antagonistic to one another. Right, right. Very insightful point. Um, <clears throat> Professor, looking at Al-Farabi's political philosophy, are there aspects that you believe are particularly relevant to the current geopolitical land landscape? Yes, and so in, in fact, I just touched on one of the main ones. I think that there needs to be um, a proper understanding of the relationship between philosophy and law or science and religion whatever terms we use to articulate that. And I think I need to stress that one of the main characteristics of Al-Farabi here is that what he means by philosophy is philosophic science. He, he very strongly believes in the importance of science, but it is a more comprehensive kind of science than what we are most accustomed to. 
So he doesn't um, he doesn't um, think of science as a group of little small departments that are unrelated to one another, but rather that there are comprehensive procedures and ways of thinking about the world which are rational and they're important in every science, including the religious sciences. So Al-Farabi's interest to us, I think, is giving us a stress on the importance of philosophic science, but also showing us that there doesn't need to be an antagonism between uh, religion and science. And sometimes those of us who are advocates of um, the importance of religion can sometimes try to defend our religious tradition by saying that it is distinct from or it's different. So this was uh, an interview that we conducted with uh, Professor Terence Cleven. Um, another interview that we've had was with Professor Ant- Anthony Booth, who is a professor of ethics and uh, epistemology at the University of Sussex. And that interview then will also take us towards the end of our show today. And before we go on, I would like to thank our producer, um, the Rasmin Mirza, as well as the tech team behind the scenes that has been helping us a lot in getting these uh, shows running and working as smooth as possible. So Al-Farabi has been the topic today. I hope that our listeners were able to benefit. We will now be uh, heading towards the last interview, which is with Professor Anthony Booth. Let's say what he had to tell us about Al-Farabi. Thank you very much for being with us today, uh, Professor Booth. Um, we are discussing various um, Islamic philosophers this week at the Voice of Islam radio. And uh, the topic for the Thursday show is Al-Farabi. Now, Al-Farabi's work, the political regime, he he discusses various forms of government. Um, Can you explain the classification of governments and how did he assess their virtues and shortcomings? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, An utter pleasure to be here at Voice of Islam. So, Farabi has, um, you know, he does, as you say, discuss various different forms of government. Um, He often refers to these as cities after the Greek uh, polis, which we can think of as a kind of political entity. So, the best kind of system of government or the best sort of political entity for Farabi is one where the prophet is the kind of autocratic leader. Now, what makes the prophet be uh, the best possible political leader uh, is interesting. So he he's taking from Plato's account of the philosopher kings in Plato's uh, sort of perfect republic, mm-hmm. where the theoreticians, as it were, the scientists uh, are in charge. Uh, and they govern the harmonious city-state, a political entity. Now, Farabi kind of criticizes Plato, I think, in thinking that, well, (laughs) in asking the question, well, would the sort of geek scientists, if you like, uh, be really the best people to govern? And he thinks, no, what you you need is people who are able to just explain the difficult truths of the world in a way that the public can understand. 
So you don't need just sort of scientific knowledge. You also need the capacity to explain rhetorical ability. And that's why I think he thinks uh, is the mark of the prophet, not only somebody who knows the truth, but is able to explain the truth via symbols and allegory, uh, the truth in a way that everybody can understand. And then that, that keeps the harmony of the city-state because it brings everybody along with it. Okay, so that's that's the best kind of government, mm -hmm. the one where the prophet is in charge. So the prophet has got perfect theoretical knowledge and perfect uh, rhetorical and practical abilities. Uh, and so it would be impossible if you were to meet the prophet not to be persuaded uh, by him. So it's no... So when there is a prophet, there's no question as to who should be in charge. Now, the, the really interesting political question for Farabi is, well, we know that uh, Muhammad is the seal of the prophets, so there isn't going to be another prophet after him. So the political question really for him is, is how do we organize ourselves in times when there isn't a prophet? How do we organize ourselves, uh, ourselves politically in times when there isn't a prophet? Now, so the second best, if there isn't a prophet, the second best political system for Farabi is one which is still an autocratic system, so not a democratic one, where the ruler is somebody who has similar skills or a group of people who have similar skills to that of the prophet, namely the theoretical virtues, the sort of knowledge of science and the ability to communicate these things to the public. Mm. But this autocratic system isn't going to be quite as perfect as that of the prophet. Are, these people are only going to be able to resemble the prophet's abilities in some way, in some imperfect way. And so because they are imperfect, these are, this system can likely kind of degrade. Okay, And I think he's probably talking very indirectly about the historical progress of the caliphate from the prophet then to the Rashidun and uh, perhaps beyond. Okay, because it's imperfect, and all these people aren't, can't quite get reach the level uh, of leadership that the prophet has. The political system can, over time, then degrade if you have that. So then you have uh, the full scale of the degradation, the worst kind of political entity, which you'll call a kind of tyrannical city, and that's the kind of autocratic system that's not based on the truth. Uh, and is and uh, and even worse. So there's an autocratic system that isn't based on the truth, isn't based on science and knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, but even worse is what he calls a tyrannical ignorance a city. That is where the kind of there's a sort of culture and effectively propaganda that the people, the the tyrants in charge, uh, present that kind of brainwashes the public. Um, such that the public don't even realize that they're living in uh, an unvirtuous city, that they're living by lies. And so in this city, this is the, what, the, what makes this city the worst for Farabi is that there's no possibility of it turning back from being unvirtuous, not guided by the truth, uh, to going back to being virtuous. Okay. Now, in between the two is what he calls the democratic city or the democratic political entity. Now, that's not quite as good 
uh, as a as an autocratic system where somebody obviously nowhere near as good as a, a democrat uh, as a political system that's ruled by the prophet and not quite as good as one that's an autocratic system where there's somebody close to being like the prophet uh, but in the end it's going to be the best that we have because in this democratic system although it's okay, we can't guarantee that it's virtuous uh, we can, there's always the possibility for us to go back because we're not in a kind of tyranny we can always go back uh, there's always the possibility of reverting from being unvirtuous to reverting back to being virtuous so I think in the end the political solution for Farabi that in times when there isn't a prophet is to live in uh, in a what he thinks is a democracy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. amazing I hope that yeah. uh, <laughs> More I mean, you, uh, you've really uh, given a great summary of a very, very vast topic, I see. Yes, it's a, yeah, that's right. It's a, <laughs> it's a very long, you know, it, yeah, it, it tells us a lot about these things. So I'm trying to make it as brief as possible. Yes, yes. Um, could you also give me sort of a brief overview of uh, Al-Farabi's um, epistemological framework and its uh, significance within his broader philosophical thoughts? Again, you do ask some very good but uh, difficult questions. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my, my very best to uh, keep this short. Okay, so I think for Farabi, the real question was, was really guiding everything. And, and I would say this is the, really the guiding question for all of uh, medieval Islamic philosophy of the school of Falsafa, was the relationship between reason or philosophy, broadly whether you can think of it more like science, uh, and prophecy. Okay, mm. uh, so as I mentioned before, what, what the prophet has, so they're thinking that Islam is a religion of reason, that it can, then its edicts can be uh, evidentially verified. Um, and they think that what's then special about prophecy is that what the prophet brings in a political system, for example, that the, the philosophers don't in Plato's sense, is its rhetorical ability, the ability to explain difficult truths in a way that everybody can understand, okay, via symbols and metaphors. And in a way, that's what the prophecy is, the truth in a way that everybody can understand, presented in such a way that everybody can understand. Now, I, I myself have a, a particular view about what Al-Farabi thinks, and I think it's important to say that not everybody shares this view. Now, some, the, the kind of more classical understanding of Farabi is that because all that's in prophecy is the truth presented via metaphors uh, for the public to understand, that therefore philosophy is in some way, or reaching truth via doing philosophy, is in some way kind of epistemically superior to just getting the truth by just reading the prophecy. You can get the truth just by reading the prophecy, but it doesn't have quite the, the same cachet as getting the truth through uh, doing it via philosophy, because only doing it via getting doing philosophy can get you proper certainty. Now, that view is often, I think, in the scholarship, I think it came about through the interpretation of a Jewish thinker called Leo Strauss, who was an emigre of Nazi Germany, moved into the United States. Uh, 
uh, and that's had a lot of sort of uh, significance uh, in people who are doing Farabi scholarship. Now, I think Farabi's view is slightly more complicated that, than that. They agree that the, the prophet does have this perfect rhetorical ability, but that what makes the prophet have this perfect rhetorical ability is the thing that gives him especially absolute certainty and in a way that doesn't uh, give us absolute certainty. So the, the, in a way that we can never achieve absolute certainty. So if I may try to illustrate this, so uh, you, the presenter on this program, know that, uh, let's just say that uh, on, Voice of England, on Voice of Islam, that there's going to be a program on Al-Farabi at six o'clock. Okay, so that's a discrete bit of knowledge or a proposition. Mm -hmm. And I know that. I know that too. Uh, and I can verify it, you know, by uh, perhaps tuning in at a certain time. Mm -hmm. So we know the same proposition. But I put it to you that you understand that proposition, right, because you know the timetabling of Voice of Islam and the, and the issues attendant to the timeline of your radio station much better than, than I do. Yes. So you understand that set proposition better than I do. Okay. Mm -hmm. So even though it's exactly the same bit of knowledge that we have, your epistemic state is different to mine. Okay. So I think this is the the idea that to illustrate how Al-Farabi thinks uh, prophecy is different to human knowledge. So there's nothing in prophecy any for any discrete bit of knowledge that we can't verify, but the prophet still understands it um, better than better than us. So what prophecy brings is a kind of narrative picture of how the different various truths of the world kind of hang together. And this enables him for really quite complicated reasons that I won't be able to uh, come in go into today uh, to do with Aristotelian uh, epistemology, mm. that gives him uh, a level of certainty that no human on their own uh, can possess. Okay. Mm. Now, I think this is a, in, a, in a piece that he, he calls the conditions of certainty. He enumerates various different grades of certainty with, with, a, with a fine or best grade is restricted, in my interpretation, to the prophets. That's not to say that us more ordinary humans can't achieve a level that approaches the prophet's level of certainty, uh, but we can't quite get to that level of understanding. And I think that matches, interestingly, perhaps the difference in the grammar of the Arabic for knowledge and the English uh, for knowledge, where in English, uh, it's weird to talk about grades of knowledge. You can't sort of say, I sort of know that um, Baghdad is the capital of Iraq, for instance. That sounds infelicitous. So you can't talk of knowledges, mm. whereas you can do that. You can talk of ulum, for example, for the Arabic for uh, knowledge within ilm. So yeah. this, already in Arabic, there seems to be a kind of gradation of knowledge. So this coheres with that. So I think then the broader... Broader significance is that for this business of, of, of a really quite radical and emancipatory fallibilism for Farabi, that 
non-prophetic knowledge, we have to be satisfied with something that we can be certain to a degree, but we can never achieve absolute certainty. We have to be satisfied with uh, with that condition that we can never quite reach the absolute certainty of the prophet. Absolutely. I hope that, I hope that makes some sense. Uh, no, it does. I mean, uh, if I was to put it in simpler terms, maybe that the prophet is not just given the word of the uh, of the revelation, but also the understanding with it. Yes. Whereas um, we mortals. If I'm to say that, can only yes. take the words and the understanding that we basically have as human beings. Yes, yes. For Farabi, I think the Prophet gets the, all of the truths of the world. What what makes him be have a revelation is that he gets them all sort of together. That he gets a picture of how all the different truths come together at once. Right. Uh, whereas we can only, with a lot of toil figure out one truth at a time or a few truths at a time. And so we can't get this whole picture of how everything hangs together. So we can then verify prophecy. This is the, the point of a kind of rationalist religion, that we can verify the prophet. We know that the prophet is the real prophet by testing his, mes his message against the evidence. Hmm. Uh, but there's still something special about prophecy that no individual human can get. And that's this kind of picture, indeed, exactly. And that narrative picture gives him an understanding of the world that we can't get. Absolutely. I mean, this this is a very interesting and very um, long debate. If 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 we really had time for this, but unfortunately, yes, uh, today is not the time for that. Um, yes, one yes, one absolutely. last thing um, I would like to ask you, Professor Booth, um, is in regards to so the contemporary political discussions. How relevant? are um, Al-Farabi's ideas there when we talk about the political discussions of today? Okay, so one of the, I think one of the fascinating things that he gives us is this idea that we just can't be absolutely certain of anything. But first of all, because knowledge is graded here, it doesn't mean that we need to take a kind of agnostic position or that we need to kind of espouse a moral nihilism or a moral relativism. We can be as certain as it is appropriate for humans to be. We just can't be absolutely certain about things. So we can be more than uh, taking an agnostic position. We, can, we could, don't just have to hedge our bets about everything. We can be more than that, but we can't be absolutely certain. We always have to have this uh, entertain the possibility, however small, that we may be wrong for all of our beliefs. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this gives us an interesting account from within Islam or an Islamic or Islamic thought about what extremism is. So I think that he thinks that an extremist then is somebody who puts themselves in a position where they, they think that they have certainty, where they're not really entitled to that certainty. So by saying that they're absolutely certain of things, or presenting themselves as being absolutely certain of things, they're actually setting themselves up as a false prophet, uh, and so kind of shirk. Um, so I think that's an interesting position. Mm -hmm. the, the other one I think that's interesting is what he's talking about. When he talks about democracy, I don't think he's really talking about democracy in the way that we might understand it uh, in a more contemporary way. I think he's thinking about it more in, in the way that 
philosophically we might think about anarchism, where anarchism is more, it isn't as kind of strange as one might imagine. It's more about not having a state where a state is defined as the thing that has a monopoly of legitimate violence and importantly for him, the monopoly of ideas and culture here, and maybe perhaps religion being in that. So in the democratic state for Farabi, it's one that, is, that there isn't really police and the army and things like that. And there's a kind of no one group of people has a kind of monopoly of ideas and culture. So it's a kind of state where that allows for all manner of ideas to be discussed, so the kind of epistemological pluralism, because we're all fallible and we can't get this absolute certainty. So I think this really accords well with the Quranic dictum that there is no compulsion in religion and that the true kind of Islamic political system is one that absolutely mandates freedom of speech uh, and freedom of belief. So I think those are the... the the important uh, messages for today. Perfect. Uh, Professor Booth, thank you so much uh, for being with us. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, these are very, very lengthy uh, discussions and debates to have. And you have beautifully um, summarized it uh, in, in this very short time. So thank you very much for being with us. It, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much.